All right, so we do eventually have to talk about Revelation, as scary as that is, but I'd like to start with what I would like to call a professorial panoramic perspective of the Perusia. <laughs> okay, I had to Google what this meant. <laughs> Somehow Charles thinks this means overview, but someone can explain to me. Uh, Revelation is a difficult book. Funnily enough, this is the first book of the Bible that I read from beginning to end. For whatever reason, my old Sunday school teacher thought it'd be a good idea to tell us to read the book and come to him on Sunday with any questions we might have. <laughs> and needless to say, I remember nothing. I remember nothing. And I actually had never read the book since then. Revelations became this thing of weird images that are cool, I guess, but I didn't really know what to do with it. It didn't feel relevant to me, so I never felt the need to go back to it. I read, you know, the Gospels, I read Genesis, I read all these other easier-to-understand books, and I always stayed away from Revelation. Um, so I thought it'd be good to kind of just be reminded of why it is we need to look at Revelation, because there's a, a context to the text that's important for us. Uh, and the context is that we get to know the end of the story. Now, if you've been going to the Wednesday night class, uh, I've been with Charles doing a beginnings class where we're looking at Genesis and talking about how God started this whole universe well, in Revelation, we get to see what happens at the end. And our story that happens in the middle doesn't really make sense unless you take a look at the end. So we need to look at the end. And the second thing that Charles talked about is that the context of this book is that it was something that was given to the church during a period of extreme suffering. Now, I thought about describing the kind of things the Christians at that time went through, but it ended up feeling like it was too gruesome to talk about in this room. Uh, but to summarize, it was death that they were facing if they didn't renounce their faith. It was torture. It was deportation. It was financial instability. It was a lot of things. And what did John give them? He gave them this book from Revelation. And when Charles and Carlos have been talking about it, you see that there's uh, encouragement in it, but there's also rebuke. And even in that, the church was somehow encouraged by that. So if it was relevant to them, if it gave them strength, it has to be something that's important for us to take a look at that can give us strength as well. Um, so that's the context. Uh, I also want to acknowledge that Revelation is where a lot of people disagree. It, it causes a lot of division among the church. So let's start by just kind of being reminded of some of the things that we can be in agreement about. And this is important because one of the pillars of our church is that we have a prioritized theology. You hear Charles and Carlos and everyone talking about the absolutes, convictions, and preferences all the time because there are certain things that are absolute that we know we can agree on, and then there are some things that are convictions, some things that are preferences that we are okay to kind of disagree on. We can still love each other through it. Uh, so let's be reminded of the things that we can agree on. So in agreement, we know that Christ will return. We know there's going to be a judgment of all people. We know there's going to be a separation of believers and non-believers. Believers are heading towards a new heaven, a new earth, and non-believers are heading towards separation and alienation. Uh, okay, so now we're going to take a look at some of the disagreement. The main disagreement is how to approach Revelation. Now, I'm sure you're sick of hearing about the preterists, historicists, futurists, and idealists, but we're going to revisit that one more time. Uh, that I know of. I don't know if they're going to re revisit it again after this, but we'll do it today. And part of that is to respect the ways of looking at the Bible, to acknowledge them, and to learn about them so we can love each other better. 
Charles had all these complicated charts and things to explain those things to us, but I, I decided to just throw up my Cliff Notes version. This is how I keep them straight, okay? So the preterist says, revelation happened in the past, the end. Historicists believe revelation happened in the past and continues to happen into the future. So you get a look at the past and you get to look at our future. The futurist says, revelation will happen in the future. We haven't seen it come to pass yet, but we will. The idealist says that revelation kind of always happens, but not really. Like, it, it happens, but not literally. Does that make sense? So, the, we're going to go through chapters 8 through 10 today. We're going to look at the trumpets. Uh, and when you think of trumpets, uh, back in those days, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have notifications. Um, Instead, they had, you know, other things that would kind of announce what was going to happen. And trumpets was one of those things where it would, uh, it would get your attention so you know that something's coming. So maybe it triggers, it, it designates that the morning's starting or it's time for lunch or whatever it is. But uh, this portion of Revelation has a series of trumpets call out and then a bunch of things happen. So rather than reading through the verses, which we don't have time to do, I'm just going to summarize it real quick. There's a chart here. The, there's the first trumpet. Okay, just, there's a lot of strange imagery in Revelation. We can just agree there, but I'll summarize it. First trumpet happens, and then there's hail, fire, and blood in the land. There's a second trumpet, and it brings a burning mountain into the sea, and that corrupts the, the salt water in the sea. There's a third trumpet that brings a burning star into the rivers and springs, and the fresh water is corrupted. A lot of people die. There's a fourth trumpet where there's a sun, moon, and stars are darkened. And then there's a kind of interlude where there's an eagle whose voice cries out, woe, woe, woe to those who are on the earth. And then there's a fifth trumpet where locusts come from a pit. There's a sixth trumpet where there are angels from the east that bring plagues and destruction. There's another interlude, and then there's a trumpet seven, which we are not going to look at today. It happens in chapter 11, uh, where the kingdom comes. So I thought the best way to look at these uh, preterist historicists and everything, those views, is to look at these trumpets through those lenses and see how they differ and what they look like. Uh, you have the preter preterist, and to be reminded, uh, as a reminder, the preterist believes that everything in Revelation has already happened. So a preterist would look at these trumpets and say, well, these are different disasters that happened to the Jews, that the Romans were persecuting them, and in AD 70, uh, the Roman army finally came and destroyed Jerusalem. So, so Revelation's really about what happened to the Jews. Now, you have the historicist who also looks at Revelation, believes that each trumpet is tied to a different event, and they'll say that this is, this is what happened to the Romans. They had different armies invade them, and then trumpet five and six might be the rise of Islam or the Islamic Turks and Ottomans. Uh, kingdom coming... I've heard some people believe that that's when the Bible became free, freely available to the masses, that there's a printing press, and now everyone can have a Bible in their hands. But the rest of the Revelation is still to come. So both the preterists and the historicists believe that Revelation describes actual events, uh, some of which have happened and some of which we're waiting to see. And you might believe that the imagery doesn't really match but if you're in the midst of these disasters, like it's going to look like the end of the world, and that's why the Revelation sounds like it's the end of the world. 
Uh, now you have the futurist who believes that we haven't seen any of these trumpets yet. We're waiting for them. And as each one cries out in the future, we'll see the disasters happening, either literally like it says in the text or figuratively in some other kind of disaster like, like a nuclear bomb or something like that. And lastly, there's the idealist approach, which doesn't believe that the trumpets can be attributed to any specific event, but it's really what's important is the imagery that it shows, this reoccurring imagery that we see throughout the Bible. So God cares about sin. God is bringing justice. You look at the trumpets and you're reminded of Egypt, that God brought all the plagues onto the uh, Egyptians so that the Jewish people could be freed, so they can be let go. So Revelation is really just a continuation of a pattern of how God works in humanity, so we don't have to worry about all the ins and outs of it. Does that make sense? Okay, maybe not that important to most of you. <laughs> I, I don't even know that it's important to me, but we have to talk about it. It's important for us to know where you know, how we each read the Bible. Like, I think of, I was part of a Bible study once where I had these two guys who were in it. This is a dear, dear Bible study to me, uh, where one guy, he only read the King James Version. He said that that's the version of the Bible before they put all the evolution stuff in it. Except he didn't say stuff. I'm not going to say what he said. He did not say stuff, but it was the evolution stuff. And then I had another friend who read only the New Living Translation, and he was... Uh, very adamant about evolution. He liked to get on uh, conservatives' nerves by saying the Bible never really condemns polygamy. Uh, and they would, just, they would just egg each other on and they would get into these arguments and they never really got to see eye to eye, but they kept coming to church together. They kept coming to this Bible study together. We kept eating together. And eventually, you know, they were the groomsmen in each other's weddings. Never agreed, never agreed. But they knew how to love one another in the midst of their disagreement. So, you know, we learn all of these things, all these different views, so that we, we know how to love one another better. Like Charles said, all these different views have people who are smarter than me, who are more godly than me, uh, on that side. And it's how they read the Bible, and that's, that's okay. All right, so we're going we're gonna to move on to talk about some things that we can agree on. Hopefully. So after the trumpets, there's uh, a section of the scripture that talks about scrolls. So we're, we're going to look at kind of the, what happens with the scroll. Let's actually look at the verse itself. Revelation 10, uh, verse 9 through 11. I'm just going to read it out loud. It says, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So John gets this little scroll and he has to eat it. And you would think that that's a really strange passage, right? But it, it's happened before in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 4. This is Ezekiel. Uh, and he said to me, this is, this is Ezekiel who's, who's doing this. He's not the he in the verse. He's, he's the one who's receiving the word. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. 
Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So this scroll is the word of God. This is the scripture. So in the midst of all of this chaos and death and destruction, like we turn to the word of God. We have to make it a part of ourselves. And this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Jesus, as he was being tempted, said, man lives not on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this is something that strengthens us and something that's supposed to be a source of strength for us. And when I look at the scripture, and I was trying to think about what it does in my life, the scripture to me reveals the presence, the character, the identity of God, and also reveals his plan that he has for us. And really, at the end of the day, it should move us to action, right? I struggled for a bit because it says that it was sweet in his mouth, but then it made his stomach bitter. And I was reading these verses. I wish that those verses weren't there. I wish I could just say, oh, he ate it, and it was great. <laughs> so read your Bible. It's great. But it says it made his stomach bitter, and I struggled with that for a bit until I realized what uh, eating of the word means and what it really does to you. Because when you eat something, it becomes a part of you. Like you don't just chew on food and, and spit it back out, right? Although I feel like that's how we treat the Bible sometimes. Sometimes we come into the church here, we listen to Charles preach, uh, we sing the songs, and then it feels really good, and then we go home and forget all about it. It never becomes a part of us. It's something that's just sweet in our mouth, that we enjoy, and then we never do anything with it again. But when it becomes a part of you, there's a fundamental change that happens in your life. You, you can't stay the same. Um, I was reminded about how I changed when I had my kids. Uh, my wife often jokes that I have some kind of psycho gene, <laughs> that I just don't feel feelings. Uh, you know, I, I don't care for children. When something bad happens, I, I'm not really, I don't really feel sad. Uh, I just, you know, go watch a movie or keep playing video games or something. I don't really feel anything. Uh, but something fundamentally changed with me once my kids were born. And I've heard it said that having a child is like deciding to have your heart come out of your body and grow legs and walk around. And it feels true to me because it makes me more vulnerable. Like all of a sudden, if I hear a story about a child suffering, I see my kids in that and I can't, I can't take it. Um, I watch the movie Coco, and I hear the song Remember Me, and I just start crying. I can't, I can't help it. Uh, and that's what's supposed to happen when the Bible becomes a part of you. Because if you read the gospel and you really internalize it, your neighbor is not just your neighbor anymore. Your neighbor is a person who is made in the image of God. Your neighbor becomes a son and a daughter and someone who's cared for, and their pain you don't get to separate yourself from that anymore. Uh, it has to become a part of you. And so the word is sweet in the mouth, but when it comes in, it changes, and it, it, it makes it so everything matters all of a sudden. <clears throat> so don't, don't let the scripture come into your life without making a part of you, because that's easy to do. It's easy to hear God loves you, 
God loves everyone. Um, and then just operate your life as normal. Because the gospel is Jesus loves us so much, he went to the cross. And that's not just for us, it's for every single person who's around you in this room. God created the world and the universe, and he declared that it was good. And as broken as this world gets, when you scratch underneath the surface of that, the good is still there. That precious thing that God created and said, this is good, it's still there for us to discover, for us to nurture, for us to care about. Um, and that's something that should really matter to us. So that's the word. All right, we're going to talk about the censor. Uh, we didn't look at these verses, but this comes actually before the trumpets. So what happens is the trumpets happen, and then uh, John gets the scroll. So scripture ends the trumpets. And this, this, this is the verse that starts off the trumpets. Revelation 8, verse 2 through 5 says, Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth, on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So before we see this um, kind of trumpets and all this destruction. What's on the altar of God? It's the prayers of the saints. And with the censer, incense and the prayers of the saints fill up this room where God is, and it prompts God to action. So prayer is something that is just precious to God. It is mysterious. I cannot explain how it works, but I know that it's something that matters to God. It's something that when Jesus came and he was facing the cross and he went to Gethsemane, he asked his disciples to pray with him. See, to me, prayer is a way of us revealing ourselves to God in the way that the word reveals God's character and presence to us. We can, in return, turn to him and take down all of the barriers between our hearts and him and bear ourselves before his presence. We can bring all of our suffering, all of the things that are heavy on our hearts, and he accepts it, and somehow he acts on it, that the God of the universe would listen to us and that our prayers would move him to action is incredible. I don't know how you pray. I don't know how you feel about prayer. Maybe you feel like it's awkward. Um, but I'm going to tell you that it, it's okay. We all have to start somewhere. I think about when I first met my wife, uh, some of our beginning conversations were awfully awkward. I cringe when I think about it. Uh, I kept talking about video games. She thought I was a punk kid. Uh, I mean, I still talk about video games. She probably still thinks I'm a kid. <laughs> but we found other things that you know, drive our relationship, things that we find in common. We learn how to communicate with one another. But that doesn't happen if you don't start somewhere. Um, back when we used to, before we dated, uh, before we kind of were in a relationship, I used to send her uh, pictures of cute animals. Because she would, you know, I used to roam the internet all the time, and she didn't. So I knew this website called Cuteness Overload. Uh, and so I just go there and I find the cutest images I could find. I would send it to her through a text or a chat 
We didn't do text back then. Because uh, I, I just wanted anything to keep her attention, to keep her talking to me. And, you know, I cringe to think about it now, but if you really care about someone, if you really want to have this relationship, you do whatever you can to be in their presence and to get their attention. And you know what God did? He went to the cross. He set up the date. That's the price he paid so that we can be in his presence, so that we can talk to him. He wants our attention. He wants us to come to him with everything that's on our hearts. So then in Revelation, you know, we see the trumpets. But bookending the trumpets is this intermingling of scripture and prayer that we can hold on to as we kind of face uh, our lives and what's going to happen at the end where scripture reveals God and prompts us to action. And we, in turn, reveal ourselves to God, and it somehow prompts him to action. And it's a relationship that is just beautiful. I'll also say, when you look at the prayers of the saints, I don't know how you feel about that, but I used to look at it as, you know, I'm not a saint. Those, those are not my prayers. Uh, I'm not holy enough for God to count my prayers. But how many, how many of you were at the Praying Church Seminar? Just wondering. And a couple of people. You know, at the end, one of the most useful, not useful, the, the things that struck me the most was when Paul Miller said that, you know, the saints are not the holy people on the stage or the pastors or church staff. Uh, it's, it's any believer. We are all saints. And the front line of the ministry is not here where we're all gathered together, but it's in your regular lives. It's in my life when I go to the store, when I go to work, when I interact with people in my family. Uh, in those capacities, we're saints. So when you pray by yourself or wherever you are, your prayers are the prayers of the saints. Those are the prayers that God loves and God cherishes and is present, precious to him. So let's not be discouraged about who we are, but be encouraged that God loves us and welcomes all of our prayers. The other thing that struck me about these verses is how God treats the prayers. Because God doesn't just take the prayers of the saints and throw them to earth. Like, what, what's he do in the verse? He takes the prayers, takes the fire of God onto them, and then throws that to earth. So we don't need our prayers to be perfect. God doesn't need perfect prayers because he takes our prayers and he refines them into his good before he acts on them. And the Bible says that as you pray, the Spirit prays along with you with groanings too deep for words. So we don't need perfect words. We don't have to have perfect hearts. We just have to come to him and his Spirit, which dwells in us, speaks for us. And that's something that we can be encouraged by. I'm going to end with one last thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, anyone who has kids, but what uh, my wife and I used to do back when the kids were younger is whenever we'd go on a road trip or a long vacation, we would leave at 11 o'clock at night. You know, you just drive through the night. Otherwise, you know, you have the kids asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I'm bored. I have to pee. Uh, so in order to avoid all of that, we drive through the night. That way, by the time we get there, 
they're kind of waking up and they get to start their day in this new place and enjoy their vacation. And it's not too bad for me. I'm an adult. I can take one night of no sleep. I just, you know, suck it up for a day and then I'm okay the next day again after a, a decent night's sleep. Um, but I think about that. I think about that when I think about Revelation because Revelation feels like something that's just so far away. It's not relevant to us. Sometimes I hear frustration of, why, why is God taking so long? It's been thousands of years. God, this is supposed to be the end of days, um, but God just takes forever, and it's just not happening. But realistically, God is the dad driving through the night. You know, it might, may take 1,000 years, 2,000 years. The only one who has to exercise the patience for that is God. For us, the end of days is one lifetime away. Because at the end of our lives, we go to sleep and we wake up at the destination. So as we finish up this life together on this earth, the single life that we have to wait, let's be encouraged to continue looking at his, his word so he can reveal to us his character, himself, draw us into loving him and loving each other, and come to him in prayer about the things that need to be done right now for justice to come, for grace to come, and for God to work his kingdom into this earth right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us. And we just ask that you would open up our hearts to see what it is you want us to see that we would be able to dive deep into your word and in there find your grace and find your love and find all the things that you've placed there to encourage us and to move us so that we wouldn't be um, a group of people who just listen to nice things and forget all about them, but that they would become a part of us, that we can be loving, that we can have the fruit of your spirit, that we can be your hands and feet the way you envisioned when you created us in your image. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us how to pray. You'd give us your Holy Spirit to speak the right words. And in so doing, as we pray, God, that you would make us more like you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to look forward to when you would come again. That we would look forward to the day when we can be in heaven. We can be with you face to face in your throne room. But in the meantime, Lord, that you would give us good purpose for this earth that we would do your good here in tangible ways, that we can be led by you. We thank you for all the things that you do. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.